Let's dig in today. It's part seven of a series called Chasing Hope. Um, and throughout this series, uh, we've been doing for seven weeks now, we're looking into the lives of the people who actually chose to follow Jesus as he walked the earth. So people who actually believed in him in person, in real time. What was their life like before Jesus? What did they leave behind to follow him? And what difference did he make in the aftermath? And so far, we've been following the lives of the friendlies in his life, right? So family members who followed him, um, a countrymen who followed him, fellow Jews, um, some of his friends, James and John, for example. We learned about Doubting Thomas last week, uh, Mary of Bethany the week before. And today we're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about what I think might be the most interesting section of this series, as we're going to focus on two men who followed Jesus, or at least believed in him with all their hearts. They believed he is who he said he was. And they were not family and friends of Jesus. They were not countrymen. They were not Jews, even. They did not belong to the right religion, but they believed in Jesus. These two men were Roman centurions who believed in Jesus with all their hearts. Now, they had a whole other life before Jesus that was built on all kinds of other power, but these two centurions actually put their faith in him. So we're going to talk about centurions today. And to understand centurions, you need to understand more generally who Roman soldiers were. Centurions were Roman soldiers who had climbed the ranks to the role of like a captain over a hundred soldiers. But who were soldiers? It wasn't like, uh, it, it's not that our, our military has low standards, but but you had to pass more stringent tests back um, in, in Roman days. You had to be a certain height. And historians are a little bit, I think it might have changed a little bit over time. Some say 5'9", some say 5'10", but you had to be fairly tall to be a, a Roman soldier. Um, you had to uh, pass strength tests. So you had to be able to carry all of your gear and weaponry with all of your um, uh, armor for 25 miles a day on foot. And if you didn't have that kind of endurance, you weren't allowed to become a part of the Roman army. Um, if you were admitted as a legionnaire, um, that's what Roman citizens were, were legionnaires, or auxiliaries, non-Roman citizens who joined the Roman army, you uh, had a pretty good life. Um, if you worked for 25 years, you got a farm of your own and things like that. There were benefits. Um, Non-citizens could become citizens if they worked in the army as, uh, well enough to deserve it. And so the centurions were the ones who rose through the ranks, um, who worked the hardest, who maybe were a little bit taller, a little bit stronger, a little bit faster, a little bit smarter, more strategic. These were the savvy warrior types of men who became the leaders of men. These were the alpha of alphas in the Roman world, in the Roman military. And, and they were, um, uh, you know, powerful guys. And, uh, and so they, they were not given the role of centurion because of nepotism or because they knew the right people or had the right connections. They earned this role. And so they were expected as centurions to be the most courageous, um, the most sacrificial, the bravest kinds of men. They were men of great distinction. They were the alpha males, the men that other men followed. Now, I was thinking about that this, this week. Um, that we still have men like that around. And uh, like it's the times are different and people are different, but, but we still have these alpha of alpha guys and they're few and far between. And they're very rarely at church. Like I've noticed over the years, they're not as into church as the general audience might be. Um, and there's a reason for that. I'll come back to that in a second. But, 
But these guys, um, you run into them occasionally. Usually they have some kind of a military background, or maybe they're in the military now, or, and or they played college football back in the day. That seems to be a common denominator for these guys. And, and I'm not just talking about beefy guys either, although these guys are beefy. These guys also um, don't need you to know that they're strong. So they'll work on their legs as much as their biceps. They'll work on their core, you know, as much as their arms. And, and they want to be strong and not just look strong. And um, even though they're the strongest men, most capable men in most rooms they sit in, they don't need you to know it, and so they just sit there. And they're the ones that, they're, they're not just beefy and brawny, they're also really smart and savvy. So without you even knowing um, that they're doing it, in every room that they're, they're in, I've seen these guys, too. I'm not one of these guys, by the way, just in case you wondered. Um, <laughs> but I've seen these guys, and I respect them so much, because they know within... Five minutes of being in a room, they know where every exit is, and they know where every weird-looking person is that might be a danger to them. They've already scoped out every room, and they're just thinking on another level. And so they look like jocks, but they'll also just ruin you in a game of risk. You know what I mean? Like they're strategic, strategic thinkers. And these guys are very few and far between, but they're around. And I was thinking this week that uh, I could probably count uh, with two hands, no more than two hands, the guys I would call, you know, the centurions of today in our congregation. And it kind of works. I kind of worked out the math and we really do have one of them for every like hundred people at the story. <laughs> so it's kind of the math checks out. Um, and, and it's so hard though to get guys like that interested in anything like church because typically traditionally church has felt really passive to these guys. It's a very kind of come and sit and consume a nice message and go home and feel good about yourself. And that's the last thing these guys want to do, right? They, they, they are not interested in being sheep. But the way we do organized religion in terms of churches, it's very often sheep-ish. And, and so they, there's something in their core that rejects it. They'll come on Easter and, and Christmas Eve to make their mama happy or their wife happy or whatever. But we have a handful of them here. I always encourage uh, my church planters that I coach from time to time. I'm like, if y'all can draw these guys. You're doing something different. You're doing something real. And I'm, it's, it's not, if you've been in one of those churches where it's like macho church and like men be men, I'm not saying that at all because these guys wouldn't say that, right? If a guy says that, he's not who I'm talking about. These are the guys that are under the radar. They don't need you to know that they're even around. Like they just, but, but if zombie apocalypse does happen, you want them on your team. Like <laughs> That's how you know who these guys are. And they are men of great distinction, great honor. They were then and they even are um, now. All right, so there are seven centurions that show up in the New Testament. Most people don't know this. I was surprised when I remembered this even, like seven centurions in the New Testament alone. It's weird. It's not a Roman, you know, document, the New Testament. The Romans were kind of the enemy, and seven centurions show up. Now, two of them, or I'm sorry, uh, one of them shows up in Acts chapter 10. This is uh, Cornelius. He's probably the most well-known centurion. He's a very important figure. Um, up until Acts 10, the Christian movement was only a, a Jewish movement. And so if you wanted to be a Christian, you had to become a Jew first. You had to start doing Jewish things and, and being circumcised and doing the Jewish food laws and all this stuff. And then in Acts 10, Cornelius is a centurion who falls in love with Jesus, wants Jesus without all the unnecessary, you know, uh, circumcision and stuff. Like, he doesn't want to be circumcised. He just wants to follow Jesus. Amen, guys? All right. So, he just wants Jesus. Peter's like, I don't know how this works. It's never worked that way before. We've never done it that way before. But Cornelius sees an opening that, that Peter can't even see. And then God confirms in Peter's heart through a vision that Cornelius is right. That it's time for a revolution. It's time to rock the boat. And so Cornelius is baptized with all of his family 
And then it's like Katie bar the door, like the Christian movement just explodes beyond just the Jewish world of Galilee and Jerusalem, but it explodes into the Gentile world and there's just, there's no stopping it at that point. There are four other centurions that appear with the apostle Paul and the only purpose they serve is to escort Paul from one prison to another because Paul was such a troublemaker that he was always going from prison to prison. And so he had a centurion escort. We only know the name of one of these. It was uh, Julius. In, uh, in Acts 27, but every time he has a centurion um, that, that's escorting him, he befriends him. I just think it's interesting. Like, they shouldn't be friends, right? But Paul befriends him and earns the centurion's respect. And so the centurion lets Paul do all kinds of things. The average, soldier, the average uh, criminal could not. So he lets him go home on house arrest, for example. He lets his friends come and look after his needs. Like, because he built trust, he built a relationship with the centurions that uh, escorted him around. And then we have these two centurions that actually encountered Jesus in some real physical way in, uh, in, in, throughout his life on earth. We're going to talk about both of those. One to more extent, more of an extent than the other. So we'll start in Luke chapter 7. This is on the back of your study guides. Um, before we get into the, the passage, I'll just tell you what's happening in context. It's always important to know what's happening in context, right? So in Luke 6, just before the passage I'm about to read to you, in Luke 6, Jesus gives the sermon he's most famous for. In um, Matthew, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Now, which was it? Was it a mount or was it a plain? Or did Jesus, like every good preacher who has ever walked the earth, use his best material more than once? I think that's probably what happened because there are some little variations in the sermon as well. He preaches one version with Matthew. He preaches one version with Luke. This is the sermon in which he says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. If a man hits you on one side of your face, give him the other cheek too. If a man takes your coat, give him the shirt off your back. A lot of these allusions enemy, someone who hits you, someone who steals from you or takes from you, a lot of those allusions would have evoked in the minds of Jesus' listeners the image of a Roman soldier. They were the oppressor. They were the enemy. They occupied Jewish lands and treated people harshly, generally speaking. And so then right after he gives this sermon, Jesus walks into Capernaum in chapter 7 where we read this story. When Jesus had um, finished saying all of this, the big sermon he gave, to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, which was his headquarters. After, uh, just before he started his ministry, he called Capernaum home because it was at the crossroads of everything that go going on in, in those days. He left Nazareth and moved to Capernaum. There, in Capernaum, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to Jesus asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now, just leave the passage up for a second. There's a lot of uh, weirdness happening here and you'll just, a lot, a lot of times you forget how spectacular some of these details are because uh, it's just the Bible and the preacher reads the Bible and then we go home and have lunch or whatever. Like, listen, there's some weird stuff happening here. Uh, there should not be a relationship between the centurion and the Jewish elders at all. There's no reason for that relationship. It tells me that the Jewish elders went out of their way to forge that relationship. And I know we often criticize the Jewish leaders in the New Testament, and they were often corrupt. These Jewish leaders had the right idea. They went outside of their circle of trust and friendship and, and religious identity, and they went and befriended a Gentile. 
And that friendship built trust between mutual trust and respect to the extent that this Gentile centurion believed in the Jewish God. And when you have someone who is not an insider, religiously speaking, but they believe in your God and they're friends with you, you have a wide open door there. And it really caused me to wonder, like, how many of us, if you've been in church for a while, how many of us are only friends, the only people that we talk to are people who are already sold in for Jesus, like they're already bought in. How many of us just have Christian friends? Or how many of us have non-Christian friends, but we never even mention the God we love and worship? There's an opportunity there that can yield such fruit, even if they don't come to church with you. Like if you build like these relationships, it can really yield something wonderful. In this case, it had done that. Like not only did he believe in the Jewish God, but he built the synagogue. He wrote a check and built the synagogue in Capernaum. And if you were on the trip with me to the Holy Land a couple of months ago, we saw the foundation of this synagogue that he built in Jesus's headquarter town. Um, and, and the ruins you're going to see in this, in this picture, the, the walls that you see that have been erected are not um, the synagogue that this centurion built, but the foundation. You see the stones underneath the wall that are a different color? That's the actual foundation of the synagogue this Roman soldier actually built for the Jewish people in Capernaum. It's an astounding um, turn of events and astounding relationship these Jewish leaders had. Um, uh, this a- admiration and respect. Let's keep reading chapter 7, verses 6 to 8 now. Now Jesus, he was going to the centurion's house. But when he was not far from there, the centurion sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a, man, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. Okay, picture this centurion with me, okay? This man amongst men, this alpha dog, who's been fixing problems and overcoming obstacles his whole life, who's ascended the ranks from soldier to centurion, now he finally has a problem that he cannot fix on his own, right? He has a, he has a servant he loves, uh, an employee that, that he respects, and, and it's his favorite employee, and, and this employee of his is, is working, is, is, is walking toward death's door, and, and so uh, this centurion, this mighty centurion, uh, suddenly feels helpless, and this man of great power and authority has heard of this Jesus figure who's been traveling the countryside healing people. And up to this point, every time Jesus healed someone, he came to their house and healed them, or they were carried to where he was, and he healed them there. He was always in the presence of someone, right? And so he asks the, the, the Jewish leaders to summon Jesus on his behalf. And so he sends them out, and they go and fetch Jesus, and Jesus comes with them. And it says, as he was getting close, not far from the house, which tells me that this centurion could see Jesus, and that's when he sent friends out from his house to go and talk to Jesus again. That's when something clicked in this centurion's mind. So think with me about who this guy was, a man of great power who understood how authority worked, all right? So he understood that his words carried power. Now, this may not seem consequential, but it is 
Because what he understood that no one else did at that time is that he didn't have to be present in order for his power to be made manifest. He held a lot of power because of Rome. His power derived from a kingdom that was much greater than he himself. And the, the seal of the promise of his power, like the way you knew he was powerful, was the seal that he wore, the seal of Caesar that he wore. Every centurion wore on his chest, on his breastplate. And then the vehicle or the delivery mechanism of his power were his words. He spoke and his power went out and his subjects carried his orders through whether or not he was in the room. He knew that. No one else in this story knew that. But he looked out and he saw Jesus who he had invited to his house and he has a change of heart. Jesus, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Jesus, just stop where you are he says, I am not worthy to have you under my roof. Not only did he not feel worthy of going to Jesus, he didn't feel worthy of having Jesus under his roof. This is not a, a Jewish man who would tend to follow a rabbi or feel any kind of, of submission, surrender in a rabbi's presence, but this man gets it. He looks at Jesus and he gets it. And the question is, what did he see in Jesus that shook him? Right? What did he see in Jesus that woke him up to that fact? That made him realize that he's not worthy to just stand in this man's presence? What do you think he saw? I'll tell you what he didn't see. What he didn't see was the Jesus you would see in a lot of our art these days. A lot of the most famous artworks of Jesus are what they portray Jesus as Kind of frail, kind of white, pasty, milk toast, wavy blonde hair, glassy blue eyes, the whitest teeth you've ever seen in the first century. And uh, just really kind of prim and proper. I promise you that's not what the centurion saw when he looked out the window. A guy like that never puts the fear of God in anyone. He saw a man of authority a man of even more authority than his own. Which leads me to believe that Jesus might have looked a little scary. And I know this is going to rock your whole world. Some of you have been in church since you were kids and you pictured Jesus a certain way with this gentle look in his eyes. And I don't, I don't think that's true at all. <laughs> I think Jesus worked in construction, in the hot sun, his whole life. He wasn't just a, like a specialty carpenter carving little trinkets. He was a construction worker, a tecton, who lifted giant cement blocks and placed them on top of one another. That's how they built their buildings. Look at any of the archaeology from the time. He was a builder by trade for many years. He worked in construction. All he ate was fish and olive oil. You don't think this guy was shredded? Like I think he was shredded, and I'm not even saying that to be like, well, every man of Jesus should be shredded too. You've been to those churches probably, you've seen those churches where it's like, every man should have biceps as big as Eric's thighs. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, that's kind of the opposite of what I'm saying. It's not about being showy. It's not about any kind of version of masculinity that's, that's toxic. It's, it's just an awareness that Jesus was intimidating. He was unsafe to the status quo. The centurion, who was a man amongst men, looks out and sees a man much greater than him. A man whose power and authority came not just from his physical presence, but came from some other kingdom even greater than, than he was. 
some other kingdom, some other place that was sealed with some other promise. And the New Testament says that the kingdom of God and His power are sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit that followed Jesus and led Jesus wherever He went in the New Testament. And so He had the power from heaven. He had the seal of the Holy Spirit. And and the Roman uh, centurion knew how power worked. He said, you don't even have to come this far. All you got to do is say the word. Like I say the word to my soldiers. You say it to yours. The forces of the spirit of the air, all the angels and demons, all the good and evil, the light and darkness in the world, you, Lord, control all of that. All you have to do is say the word. You don't even have to take another step. Like, he saw that. And no one else in Jesus' world had ever seen that or said anything like that before. And whenever he recognized that about Jesus, this is what happened in verses 9 and 10. When Jesus heard these words that the centurion sent to him, he was amazed at the centurion. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to his house and found the servant well. Wow. Okay. I don't know this for a fact, but I got to think that it's, it's a pretty tall order to amaze Jesus. How do you amaze someone who knows what's coming? (laughs) How do you amaze? That's a pretty high bar. The guy that made the trillions of stars and, and the northern lights and you and me, every cell of us, like he knows it all, right? How do you amaze someone like that? How do you surprise them? It all comes down to faith. So there's two times Jesus is amazed, only two times. And one's Good and one's not so good. So the other time happens in uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, when Jesus goes to his hometown, his first hometown of Nazareth, his childhood home, to go and preach for the first time. And he preaches, and the religious elders there, they make fun of him. They make fun of Jesus. And they're like, boy, we changed your diapers. Like, that kind of condescending, that's a paraphrase, but that kind of condescending, like, like we know your daddy, and, and you're nothing special. Who do you think you are? And it says then in Mark 6, 6, that Jesus was amazed by their lack of faith. And then there's this story. It's the only other one where Jesus is ever amazed, and, and he is amazed by this centurion's faith. And man, I was convicted this week. Like, if I have ever amazed Jesus, I'm so afraid it's been more for my lack of faith than for my courageous, see what no one else can see kind of faith. What did this centurion see that no one else could? He saw that Jesus was the Lord of all, and that he could do whatever he needed or wanted or had to do, whether or not he was physically, bodily present in the room to do it. This is the first time Jesus ever healed anyone in the Gospels without being in the same room or in the same space as them. Now, did Jesus know that he could do that before the centurion pointed it out to him? Of course he knew. And so why then, every time before this, somebody needed to be healed, Jesus let them like uh, lead him away from the lunch he was having or the house he was resting in. And like, Jesus, somebody needs to be healed. Come on, we'll, we'll lead you to them. Or Jesus, somebody needs to be healed. They're digging a hole in the roof right now. Come on. Like, why did he let them do that? Jesus could have said, guys, guys, I, I'll take care of it. <laughs> I'll do it remotely, guys. And they're like, What's a remote? And he's like, oh, more patience. (laughs) Like, I just got to wait for them to figure this out. How many unnecessary walks did Jesus go on with people? 
How many unnecessary journeys has he gone on with us? When we think things have to be done a certain way, and there's this whole other better way that he knows about, but he will not impose it upon us. He'll wait for us to figure it out. And then when we figure it out, he's amazed at last. Like a parent with a two-year-old, there's the ball, yay! You know, like, like that's how he waits with us so patiently, going on one unnecessary journey after another, going through the motions because his people think that's how it has to be done until someone, one person says, wait, why? Why does it have to be done that way? And that's what the centurion does. Wait, why does Jesus have to come inside? If he's the Lord, It doesn't have to be that way. He can do whatever he wants. He understood the power that stood in his driveway when he looked out the window that day. He understood it. I think about uh, my own journey with Jesus sometimes and how easy it is to get into a rote pattern, a rote habit of doing everything the same way. I write my sermons the same way every week, the same font, the same size, the same bold, the same like, number of pages. Like, and we all go to church in the same way all the time. And, and that's how it's been for generations, y'all. And the story is like a new and different church. But are we really like, we still do the same things every week. It's every Sunday morning, Sunday morning. And I'm saying that's a good pattern to be in. But if you think this is it, no. No, just wait. Wait until one of you wakes up in the morning and goes, wait, why? Why is that, is that how it's supposed to be? A few generations ago, someone woke up and said, wait, how are we doing church and why? Because for, for many, many years, it's always been the same. Like you want to start a church in a, an area where there's not enough churches yet because, because people need a church to go to without driving too far. And so you gather people and you raise the money and then you buy the land and then you build the building and you make sure your steeple is taller than the Baptist. And, and, then, and then you lay down some red carpet and you sing some songs and you do it again the next Sunday, the next and the next until the building needs an update and you raise more money to keep the buildings up to date. And that's what it means to do church. Until someone comes along and goes, why? And amazes Jesus. Now what's funny about Jesus is that he'll, he'll follow you to church every week, every Sunday. He'll follow you out the door, follow you to church. He'll sit with you through church. And if you think you're bored in church, imagine being Jesus in church. <laughs> all right? So he'll follow you. He'll go on all these journeys with you. He'll take all these walks with you until you're ready to see what you have as yet been unable or unwilling to see. He'll take all those journeys with you until one day you wake up like John Wesley did when he woke up and said, why? Why are we doing this? People feel uncomfortable in churches. I'm going to go preach outside. That was against the church law, and they tried to defrock him over it. He said, fine, defrock me. He said, God has called me to become more vile. And then he went outside and started preaching in the fields. More vile. And then someone a little bit later said, hey, that bar has no one in it on Sunday mornings. Let's go worship in that bar. Or, hey, let's worship in a warehouse. Hey, let's make sure that a church is not a building. Let's make sure it's a people and a movement. Like, we can do this differently, but it takes seeing things that no one else could see. The centurion, and only the centurion saw what was possible when no one else could. That's really, that's really the essence of faith, isn't it? Isn't it? Like, you don't have to be, like, 6'8", and, and, you know, massive and, and checking all the exits to be a centurion these days. What it means in the Christian context is to be faithful enough to see things that other people cannot see or will call impossible. 
Others that we've talked about in this series were, had, had the faith of a centurion. Mary, the mother of Jesus, who we're talking about next week, she had the faith of a centurion. And the angel came and gave her that news, and everybody else was going to say, a pregnant teenager, unwed mother, what a life you're leading. And she goes, let it be so. I am blessed among women. I am the mother of God. She could see something no one else could see. That's what it means, I think, to have the faith of a centurion. Now, this centurion in Luke 7 was not the only one. I told you there was another one, and the other one was uh, in Jesus' life at a more intense moment. It was the centurion who oversaw the death of Jesus on the cross. I included the passage from Mark's gospel in chapter 15 on the back of your study guides. I'm not going to read it, but I just wanted you to know that at every Roman crucifixion, a centurion oversaw it, and this centurion had probably overseen thousands of other crucifixions, thousands of other men, and in some cases women, died on Roman crosses. At his command, he oversaw it. He saw the nails going in Jesus. He heard his words, and then he watched him die. And the moment after he watched Jesus die, he said, surely this man is the Son of God. And I know when I was a skeptic, and some of y'all are skeptics now, and you hear stories like that, and you go, that sounds legendary in a fictional sense. That sounds like an add-on, something you'd say about your favorite prophet to make him sound bigger and better than he was. Well, okay, uh, you hold on to that if you, if you need to right now. I just want you to know that the, the legacy of centurions following Jesus didn't end with that one. <laughs> You have to justify why history tells us and archaeology has told us again and again that there is a long line of centurions, men amongst men, who bent the knee before Jesus. They bowed before his authority. Even though everyone else bowed before theirs, they saw something greater in Jesus than they even saw in Rome. In the second, third, and fourth centuries, we have all kinds of historical evidence of centurions laying down their lives to follow Jesus. Like, like, and Rome did not like it very much. Either in the third century, there are letters that we've got, we've recovered from one prefect to another in Rome saying, what are we going to do about all these Roman soldiers and centurions that are Christians now? They won't kill arbitrarily like they used to. Like we need to rebuild the machine. And they ended up just creating like um, regiments of Christian Roman soldiers. That's where, it, that's the point it got to. Um, in 1991, there was this church that, um, was excavated in, in the city of Megiddo, this ancient city of Megiddo. And, and it was a dig site inside a prison. So nobody's really gone there, but they've taken all kinds of pictures and you can see where the, the dig happened. And, and they uncovered maybe the earliest church building ever built. Before then, it was all house churches. And then somebody goes, let's build a church building. And, and they were all in for it. It was new, it was a, a new idea. And they, they excavated it. And then on the floor, there, was a, there is a mosaic tile inscription on the floor that um, demonstrates that the two men responsible for the building of the first church in, church building in, in probably the history of the world were both Roman soldiers. One of them was a centurion, Dionysus and Aceptus. Aceptus was a centurion. And this inscription says that they built this church out of their own pockets using their own money because they were so devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there were others, and then there were others. Some of them were ex executed. They had their heads cut off because of their faith. These powerful men of great influence laid their life down for Jesus. Why? Because they saw something no one else could. 
their faith was so great in him that it even caught him by surprise and amazed him. And I'll just ask you as I wrap up to think about when the last time was that you amazed Jesus. I'm telling you, it might not even register that thought. It might not even come to mind. You may have no idea. But I'm telling you that he's waiting. And he's waiting patiently because he loves you. And he'll wait for you to go through the motions. He'll wait for you to continue to do what you do and because you think it's the thing to do until one day you wake up and go, wait, why am I doing this? Why am I just slaving away at work? Why are we just rushing to get out the door every morning as a family? Why am I just living to meet the one and fall in love? Why am I doing life this way and putting religion as a side piece, right? Why am I doing it this way? Why don't I flip my priorities and do life differently? In the moment you say, why? Wait, there's something more I have not seen until now. You amaze Jesus. That's what it means to have faith is to live differently, to understand the wildness of God, how Jesus has never been a safe, milquetoast figure, but he is always pushing us toward a deeper faith, always inviting us to follow him into a deeper unknown. Not because he wants us scared, but because he wants us with him, he wants us faithful. I pray today, I pray for me, I want to have the faith of a centurion because I'm sick of going through the motions half-heartedly just because I think that's how it's done. It isn't. There's something more. And I pray for the faith of a centurion for you that you might amaze Jesus by doing something differently in faith this week. Would you pray with me, guys? Jesus, for the testimony of these centurions, these men of great influence and power and wealth, I thank you. Sometimes we miss this. We miss the fact that you called such a diverse group of people when you walked the earth and so many different people from different walks followed you with all they had. By their faith, you changed the world. By their amazing, unexpected faith. Their willingness to see something that they had not yet seen before that no one else around them had seen or could see. You rocked the boat. You brought a movement. Shine a light on our darkness. God, I pray the same would happen right now. That we would understand what is the power of God. And that whatever skeptical cynicism there is in our hearts, that we would surrender that part of us right now. Because we've been so cynical to the point of saying, I've seen prayer not work, and so I don't pray that way anymore. Lord, free us from that hopeless cynicism. Help us to understand that all the power of Jesus abides with us now. Help us to believe the promise that we will do the same things he did and even greater things, he said. Because the power of the kingdom of heaven resides in us and among us. And the seal of that promise is the Holy Spirit that moves in us. And the vehicle for that promise to go out into the world is our words and our actions that have power. Lord, help us to pray with power, expecting to see what no one else has seen. To see what not even we have seen yet, Lord. There are miracles yet to be done. Awaken us to what's really possible. 
Awaken us to a life of faith and not just religion. Help us to pray with courage and not just passivity. Strength and our spirits upheld by your power in us. Thank you, Lord. Help us to live and pray the faith of centurions. In Jesus' name.